Life is about moments and triggers, and I liken it to dealing with an opponent. That's George Foreman III, professional boxer, trainer, and entrepreneur. You have to do things that other people aren't willing to do, because when you go in that ring, you have to tell yourself, I may lose this fight, but I'm not going to lose this fight because I wasn't in condition. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with George Foreman III to discuss how to pivot and adjust when adversity strikes, why taking losses in preparation is crucial for victory in the ring, and how to leverage the fighter mentality both in business and in life. Assuming you're rested, assuming you're in a safe place, you push your body to a place where you can only move forward with the mind. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. George Foreman III is an undefeated pro boxer who retired with a perfect 16-0 record as a trainer and fearless entrepreneur. And yes, he's the son of two-time heavyweight champion George Foreman. My father, to those of you who may not, who are listening, who may not know too much about boxing culture, he um, gained his Olympic gold medal in uh, 1968. And then um, there was a guy by the name of Muhammad Ali who had um, gotten in some trouble. He had already been champion by at that point, but um, was stripped of his title because he wouldn't go to the war. And so my dad started his career in 69, his professional career right around that time. And um, Muhammad Ali eventually made a comeback when I tell you more a successful comeback but when he came back it was kind of like he passed his prime he's kind of old and then he fought a couple tough fights one notably with a guy named Joe Frazier Joe Frazier creamed Muhammad Ali and knocked him down and just you know pulverized him for 15 rounds when they finally fought and this was a big fight because Frazier was the champion and everybody said well Ali He's making a comeback after losing his prime in jail. And can he really do it? He was saying he still got it. And he was, you know, beating everybody. And then he was saying Joe Frazier wasn't the legitimate champion. Well, Joe fought him and destroyed him. I hate to say destroyed, but like it was, he won. So then Ali gets it together and then fights a guy named Ken Norton. Ken Norton, I think, broke Ali's jaw in two places or something like that destroyed him in terms of physically, like really, really fought him hard. And everybody at that point, even though Ali was winning his other fights, was like, believe it or not, he's washed up. He's over the hill, past his prime. So then a guy named George Foreman comes around. And this is so you know what I grew up in, <laughs> what I grew up with in, in the household. And he knocks out Joe Frazier in two rounds, knocks him down six times, knocks him out in two rounds, 
and actually destroys him, obliterates him in terms of as far as the fight was concerned. Joe got up every time, by the way, including the last time he got knocked down. Then he fights Kenny Norton, the other guy to beat up Ali. He knocked him out in two rounds and was knocking everybody else out on the way, you know, on, on the way. I don't think any few fighters had gone past two rounds with him. So he's just like a wrecking machine, like the Mike Tyson of the time and big, the biggest one out there, 6'3", which is big back then. And he's fighting Ali, who just lost to these two guys. He's going to get killed. Oh, my God. Blah, blah, blah. If you go back and read the news, that's what people are saying. And they're actually asking George, please don't kill him. Some places didn't even want to take the betting odds. And then finally, Ali teased my dad so much. He said, I'm going to kill him. Right. That's how bad of a dude he was. And Ali beat him. So it's a cool relationship between the two because a lot of people don't know why one of the biggest reasons he's considered the greatest Muhammad Ali is because he said he was the greatest. He always call, he actually called himself that. That was his nickname. But number two, he made that that moment where he destroyed the indestructible champion, George Foreman, when he was past his prime. Right. Which is really hard to do as a boxer um, and then went on to have some great epic fights after that. And then there was controversy why my dad lost and so on and so forth. So anyway. He became a preacher in 1976, stopped boxing, was preaching on the streets, on the street corners, uh, renting radio time. And um, by the time I was born in 1983, he big ball head. He was about 300 pounds, was pumping weights and going to going to church and uh, had just opened a, a youth center called the George Foreman Youth and Community Center. And the point is, by the time I started to understand who my dad was, he had mounted another comeback. I mean, mounting a comeback because he had spent all his money on uh, our youth center, pretty much our youth center in divorces. And so he said, look, I either go bankrupt, I sell the youth and community center, or I go back to boxing. So he said he's going back to boxing. I'm like six at the time at that point. No, maybe like five when he started training. And by the time I realized he was a professional fighter, I was seven because he was on TV and someone told me. And so my point is, he comes back and fights one of the top contenders when he's 37 and knocks him out in two rounds, right? A guy named Jerry Cooney. And everybody said, this guy is a monster. Then when he was 41, he took Evander Holyfield 12 rounds and almost knocked him out, but he lost that fight. And so I grew up in a household <laughs> with one of the most feared fighters of all time, highest knockout percentages of all time, but also a preacher who was my spiritual leader and went to church four days a week. And um, to say that, I mean, you were always afraid of your dad, but you had this just like weird, like ultra, ultra, ultra role model. Like he didn't drink, he didn't cuss, never looked at another woman four times a week at church. If he wasn't at church, he was at the youth center. If he wasn't there, he was on our ranch working. Um, if he wasn't there, he was traveling to a fight to fight. And then everybody was scared of him, you know, in the ring. Um, and then he had this smile. So I think you, you just didn't make excuses you didn't talk back because that would be crazy. The coolest thing about growing up with him, and sorry to go through all that, but it's just, I think it's relevant to know who, who I was in the household with. You're not afraid of anybody. You're not afraid of anybody or anything because my dad sat around and told me all these stories, how he had to face the greatest of all time. Joe Frazier was considered the indestructible machine back then. And now he had to come back when he was fat and 300 pounds and take off his shirt and claim his championship again at 46 and how he had to preach on street corners when everybody told him he was losing his mind. And he still said, well, I'm going to put the speaker here, put the microphone here, and the cops would arrest him because he was preaching without a permit. But he just kept on going. You hear all these stories and you see him in action and then you see him successful. And the same people who were calling him crazy were buying tickets to the fights or buying the grill machine, which, you know, 
or buying the book or, or saying, George, we saw you on TV, those same exact people who said he was crazy, don't call me. When you see all that, it's like, I'm not afraid of anybody or anything except my dad. <laughs> so that is the like the George Foreman experience in terms of growing up in the household with him. It's, re- it's actually really interesting. What do you feel made him so successful, even in his boxing career? The work ethic. You know, he get, he he was touted as this um, strong punching power and all that. But if you actually watch his fights, especially in the early days, he wasn't typically not the aggressor, like physically moving towards the person. He would always be backing up. But when you came towards him, he'd hit you really hard, which means he had perfected his defense. And so the, the story of him was this work ethic. And he used to get really upset to this day because he trained me as a fighter. Um, this is why I, I talk about his fighting so much. He's my coach that people would say, oh, you know, he's just got great knockout power. He's a one punch guy and he can't really box. But he's like, I worked so hard. It's like LeBron working so hard at his game. He doesn't need to like do anything fancy. He can just dribble down the court, jump and dunk it. Right. But you have to practice. You have to be in shape. You have to have time and you have to have speed, your joints, your ligaments. You can't you have to be sleeping. You have to do all these things to just make it simple. And so that was I know the work ethic, like masochistic, if that's the word, masochistic, I can't pronounce that, but the dedication, like cooked all his own food. When it was time to fight, he had zero friends. Women would not be, uh, when I say women, like if he was married, like he would not sleep in the same bed with a woman for six months. I mean, six weeks leading up to a fight. Didn't want to leave anything left for confusion. No drinking, um, no cigarettes as an athlete, the dedication, the sacrifice, and I think that type of dedication, sacrifice, hard work allows you to do things like master your craft, right? So when you get in there with this guy, he's like, okay, he's in shape. He's confident because he put in the work. He's big, he's athletic, but he's spent all this time in the gym perfecting his defense. So you can't really hit him that well. And he hits you really hard. And it's like, the only thing as a fighter I can relate it to is being stoned, when you can't hit somebody clean, fleshly, but they can hit you, that's what it's all about. And you'd have to go to watch his fighting to see that he mm-hmm. does. He did things defensively that just nobody does. It's like stuff you saw in the 20s and 30s um, because of the practice. Um, he spent hours and he forced me to do it. Hours having guys just hit him for 12 rounds or try to hit him and he wouldn't throw another punch. And it used to frustrate me because I had to learn that way. But the point is, you were never afraid, afraid to stand right in front of anybody and deal with whatever they had. The work, work, man. It's just the work. I really believe that. And, let me ask you this. I mean, if you're growing up with one of the greatest boxers of all time, and arguably one of the greatest athletes of all time, you had you know, 11 siblings. Did you feel the pressure that, you know, to not only live up to that expectation, but to also be a fighter? I never felt any pressure to be a fighter. It was just, I was curious about it. I was just always curious about it. It's, it's a fun sport. And so never did it myself until I was in my mid-20s. But I remember Lennox Lewis, who's a professional boxer, retired legend. Um, I used to go to all the HBO fights and sit ringside um, when my father was commentating. And I I was standing up as Lennox was walking into the ring and he walked past me. And I looked at him. I was like, he's not that big. So that was moment number one. Moment number two is Lennox Lewis's trainer, a guy named Emmanuel Stewart. He trained guys like Tommy Hearns, Vladimir Klitschko and a bunch of other legendary fighters. He would see me at, you know, the lead up events and, and in the green room and all that. And he said, George, he told me that, George, let me have him. I can make a great champ out of him. And he was joking. Now that I know how hard boxing is, but I believed him. 
right? And so I ballooned up to 300 pounds and um, I needed to get in shape. And I always wanted to do something. And my brothers teased me. Like, I played lacrosse. I was on varsity, but I like wasn't the best. You know, I started, I played basketball. Wasn't the best. I didn't start at basketball. Played football. Started sometime when they felt bad for me. But like, I could do anything one-on-one really well, but I couldn't play team sports that well, like running plays and all that. And so... I was in my mid twenties, had been working for my dad, managing him for almost five years at the time, gained a lot of weight, wanted to lose weight. And I was like, let me try something new as a way to motivate me to get in shape. I'll try boxing. And I called my brothers up and they've been teasing me saying that there's no proof that you were ever a varsity athlete. That was actually a big motivator for me to box because I went to prep boarding school. They were like, well, no one's ever seen you play sports. So there's no proof. You don't have like a, a letterman's jacket or whatever. So they do that where at the school I went to, they give you a sweater. So I said, look guys, if I have one amateur boxing match, will you guys shut up? That's how it started. And they agreed. And I won't carry through the rest of the story, but eventually I lost 80 pounds, committed to have an amateur boxing match. And then my dad stopped me and said, let me train you for six weeks, which turned into a year and another five years. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. Um, why, why do you why do you think he uh, he said that? Why do you think he pulled you aside and said, "Let me train you"? Because I was uh, so at the time I was his business manager. We were traveling. We were at the Crystal Cathedral. He was doing a speaking for the the minister there, and I was telling him like, you know, I want to fight. And he actually was helping me trying to find make sure I match with somebody that we know we don't just show up in a random guy, you know. And people, other amateurs, wouldn't fight me because. Typically, when you have zero fights, you fight someone else's zero fights. And they're like, why in the world in Houston, where we're all from, would I have my fighter's first fight be against George Foreman's kid? Just doesn't make sense. So then he was like, well, why don't you have a pro fight? Because at least, you know, the person's actually going to show up, right, for the check. So I was like, cool. And he was like, okay, well, if you're going to fight pro, you got to let me train you. I was like, all right. And so um, he said, we're going to train for six weeks and you're going to have your fight and then it's going to be over. Six weeks turned into six weeks and it just kept on going. And I think I do remember my mother was uh, scared and she was like, you got to go down there and check on him. Right. And so I think he did. Once he influenced me to have that fight, he didn't want to be the reason I got hurt. And so he's like, I got to watch him. And then I can tell you for sure we were having fun. That's why six weeks turned into a year of training before my first fight. I think he enjoyed it because he loved the sport. And I loved it, too. So. But we never like we never, by the way, sat down and like had a, a meeting about it. And he was like, yeah, let me train you for this first one. And then we just like woke up and it was like a year later at my first fight. He's about to shoot an infomercial with the Harrington's, Kevin Harrington and his brother. And I was telling him about the script and he was like, don't worry about that. Worry about your next fight. And I was like, there's your next fight. And he was like, yep, next month. And I was like, OK. And I just went home and ate food and like started training for another fight. There was no discussion. And George, I'd love for you to talk about what that what that training was like, because, you know, obviously with your father, it seems like there's no, you know, it's either going to be the best or nothing. And it wasn't just let's go lift some weights and let's go, you know, do some cardio. I think, you know, from a lot of what I heard about that training, it's almost like the Rocky, you know, type training and, and a lot of it physical, but also mental as well. It was all mental. I think you, you can't tap the mental unless you have um, driven the physical past what's appropriate then you tap into the mental, right? Everything else is just like being lazy or like concerned that you're going to hurt yourself and all that, which is healthy. You should be. But when we're trying to train the brain, you got to push the body to a place where, assuming you're hydrated, assume, assuming you're rested, assuming you're in a safe place, maybe someone knows where you're at or, or, or observing you, you push the body to a place where you can only move forward with the mind, right? And so that's what it was all about. So the first thing was 10, run 10 miles 
And he kept asking me, like, I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to teach you anything until you run 10 miles. And I eventually had to do that with no preparation. He kept asking me and I had just been sitting on the recumbent bike. We were traveling a lot. And um, he finally was like, you know what? Let's just go do it tomorrow. And he was like, do you have boots? I was like, no. And he went and found a 13, size 13 and a half pair of boots at Famous Footwear. I was a size 14 and like almost 15. And he was like, let's go. He's like, I'll let you start off slow, but you cannot walk. And around mile seven, I never run more than three miles. Mile seven, I took off because he, he was behind me in a buggy and he was like, don't let your feet hit the front of this thing. And I took off for a mile. And I was like, I to this day, I don't know how in the world I did that. That was this. The body wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't doing anything. And then I recovered while jogging and then finished another three miles and did not realize that my heels were full on gushing, bleeding, right? Outside the boots and everything until the end, the mind, right? Hormones and so on and so forth. So I think he, the way he would explain it is I'm trying to put an ingredient in your brain that you're going to need because when you get to round 10, round 11, round 12, the body's tapped out, the mind takes over. And we're trying to train your brain on how to do that and feel comfortable in that space. And I could tell you more and more about some of the challenges, but it was all about how do we build mentally this expectation that the body is not going to carry us there. Having mental toughness is a difference maker, not only in the gym, but also in the business world, as many entrepreneurs know well. I asked George to elaborate on his decision to take on the challenge of professional boxing and what kept him pushing forward when adversity struck. For some reason, I always loved the preparation. The only time I would feel like, why am I doing this? I don't know if this is for me, is right before the fight. Like right before I get there the day before the weigh in. I couldn't sleep the night before. That was annoying. But then right before the fight, I'd be sitting in the dressing room like, what in the world am I doing? Like people are sitting around, like swarming around you. Everybody's like, you know, all the people who are supposed to be serious, like this is the fight. All right. Are you are you OK? Are you ready? Are you ready? And then you like peep through the curtains and they're out there like dancing and having a beer and having a good time and laughing and joking. You're like, yo, I got to fight. And then you see the guy who normally, because I fought, I fought a lot of guys who the goal was to prepare me, right? To, to get me used to fighting in the crowd and to slowly step it up. But a few of these guys, like they didn't have great records, but when they were fighting me, everybody in their family, their whole family was saying, if you beat him, this is your big break, right? Which I don't know, but that's their mindset. So they finally trained. Like I had a guy who I fought, I saw a video, he was flabby always flabby, but looked athletic, but flabby <laughs> had fought on ESPN years ago. And I saw two guy, a couple guys knock him out in like two rounds of guys that I could beat. He shows up to my way in like muscles in every single part of his body, like every single part of his body. I, mean, I would assume he's on steroids. Nice guy. And I could knock him out. Couldn't like we went, I think, uh, eight rounds. So I think the point is that moment where you're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. The unknown is just that that always was my moment. And I have to take my shirt off and then fight somebody like, and then my dad's telling me like, don't knock him out too fast. Let it go a little bit. <laughs> and I'm like, dad, that was it. And then immediately after the fight, you walk out of the ring and I don't know if business, I think business is like this. Sometimes you ask yourself why in the world I'm doing this, but when you get over the hump, right, you have the rush. And then you immediately like, I got to get back to work to fix all the things I did incorrectly. And you just keep on going. So I think that was the moment. But the work at some point, which is why I like to push a lot of the people I work with, you sacrifice so much, you just can't stop. 
and you built so much physical confidence, which generates mental confidence that you're not really concerned on whether you can do it or not. It's just a matter of how much time. So. And George, I know you're a humble guy, but I want to make sure that the, the people listening to this podcast know that your professional record was 16-0, 15 knockouts, one decision, but zero losses, zero draws. I'd love to know just kind of like what you learned from that experience, just you know, even just basically, you know, retiring undefeated. That you take your losses in the preparation. During preparation, take your losses there. I think you're going to have competition that you thought was going to be hard. My first fight. I didn't see the guy until we walked in and my dad was like, he's going to do this to you. He's going to do that to you. And I don't know, you got to watch out for this. Like he was nothing. And I mean, as a fighter, he's a great human being. But um, I fought like four or five guys like where I was so afraid of them. And apparently like they didn't stand a really chance. And I fought a few guys I wasn't afraid for afraid of. And they almost knocked me out. You know, one guy knocked me down, but they didn't call it a knockdown because I slept at the same time he hit me. <laughs> so my point is like, you know, I won those fights, but the reason I won those fights is because I took my losses in the gym. I took my losses in the morning when I was running. Like all my losses were in preparation. And the more I took my losses there, I feel like the more likely that I was prepared for the stuff you can't prepare for, right? You have to make adjustments, but you need confidence to make adjustments. So I'd say that's what it was all about. So after going 16 and 0, I'm just curious, like why retire? Interestingly enough, um, one of the other requisites that my trainer and my father made was that if I'm going to train you, you have to train other people. And um, the gym was like a 60,000 square foot fitness facility at the time, the youth center. And he had shut down the boxing component. It was a separate building, 3,000 square feet. And that's I trained myself by myself there for a year before he started training me. He said, look, I want to open back, open up the program again. And he said, you're going to open it up. I said, OK. Kind of had to say yes to because he was still like my boss professionally at the moment at the time. But um, I was like, Dad, I don't know what to teach him. Like, I'm just like, I'm just learning this myself. He said, just teach him whatever I taught you that day. Whatever I teach you on a Monday, teach them that Tuesday. I said, OK. And so I just started from scratch and I fell in love so fast. And I was training people that were in their mid-20s. I was, had a nine, nine-year-old, a 12-year-old. I had people in their 30s. And I saw interesting things happen. I saw these youngsters with all types of confidence. I had a, a, a young man who his uh, he was the most feared kid in the in, in the district, uh, HISD, Houston Independent School District, not of the people, the students, but the teachers were terrified of him. In addition to the students, I didn't even know until he graduated. And um, a teacher came and found me at church and said, thank you. What did you do? And I was like, I don't know who you're talking about. I saw, you know, a husband come come in, uh, a man that, that that was married that was probably 280 pounds, but he was like 5'4". And um, we got him down to looking lean, like really lean. And then one day his wife came in and said, I want to see what you're doing with him because I was about to leave him, you know, and to see that happen um, and so on and so forth. I fell in love with that. And obviously teaching the craft is something that's very special to me to never let people learn it wrong. And so... For the first time in my life, I had something where, like when I was training myself, to be honest, like I have this weird like determination to finish something that I start, but I just couldn't wait for it to be over. And then I'd look up, you know, it was weird. I don't know how to explain it because I was, I never like slacked or anything, but I was like, when is this going to be over? Always, right? But when I was training other people and teaching them the craft, I couldn't wait to get there. I had to hold myself back. My dad be like, you're pushing yourself too much training people. And then at the in the evening, people who the the young lady who managed the gym would have to beg me to leave. Like monk, they call me monk. It's 930. You got to go home because you got to get up in the morning. And then I'd be there Saturday, there Sunday when I was going off to fight. 
and I wasn't getting paid for this. I was losing money doing it. I'd have other trainers that I trusted come train my people and I have to pay them while I was off to fight. Like this was special to me. And I'd never had anything in my life where I had to be talked off a ledge in terms of work ethic. You know, I always had the work ethic, but you could talk me out of it. This you couldn't. And so I was visiting I, and I'm sorry. And I was listening to a Dave Chappelle interview just like this. And he described how he got into comedy because all his parents were somewhat educated I think very educated. And his father, he was having an argument. And his dad said, the odds of you becoming successful being a comedian are super low. And he said, dad will define success or something like that. And he said, if I can make, his dad wanted him to be in, in the academic world, I believe. He said, if I can make a teacher's salary, this is where I remember it at least. If I can make a teacher's salary doing comedy, wouldn't that be successful? And I think his dad said something like, he got me. And that was kind of my moment. And I remember telling a friend, like, if I could make a living teaching boxing, I would stop the actual professional part in a heartbeat because boxing was never about making money. That also made it weird for me. Like, why am I like taking off my shirt and punching people to make money? This is a hobby, right? But that could be a vocation an avocation and so on and so forth, teaching people. So that was my moment. And then it was just a matter of time before I figured out how can I put a roof over my head doing this? I thought teachers made $35,000 a year. So I was like, if I can do that and pay for insurance, like I'm good. I come to find out teachers made a lot more than I made my first two years managing my business, um, especially in Massachusetts, which is where I started. And through your experience, because I know there's a lot of principles that you took from boxing that, you know, that ultimately you also applied in building a business. And you saw even many of the students that, you know, that you taught and mentored. What, what were some of those? What were some of the things that you, you, know, you felt that applied in the boxing ring that also applied in, in life and, and even entrepreneurship? Uh, life is about moments and triggers. It's about moments, instances. Boxing is very much like that. And I liken it to dealing with an opponent. So when you hop, hop in the ring, like, especially if you're evenly matched, you can't just go out there and just do what you're going to do. Like, you have to make adjustments. And the fight is won by just like optimizing a website or optimizing your digital strategy or like you tried this, didn't work, but you did an A-B test or you like ran this subject line in an email against 20% of your list. And the other one against another 20% of your list, you pick the winner and ran that against the other 60%. That's what a fight's like, a real competitive fight. But you have to be prepared and have the knowledge to make those adjustments. You have to know what, like, try this. If this doesn't work, I'll try this. Why did that work? All right, let me tweak that. Let me pull back. I'm a little too close. I'm a little too far. I think he was tired. Maybe he isn't tired. Let me try to figure out if he's tired. He is tired. Okay, well, I'm not going to sit on my stool. The whole preparation before the fight even before the fight starts, is you're making adjustments based on every interaction with the person you're fighting. So I think that can be, you know, applied to anything, even you making adjustments against your own silliness. So I think how do you prepare to make adjustments? Like fatigue cannot be a thing, right? You have to prepare. Stamina is a boxing term. It's a, it's a term in general, but it's very centric to boxing. So you have to like prepare. You have to do things that other people aren't willing to do. Because when you go in that ring, you have to tell yourself, I may lose this fight, but I'm not going to lose this fight because I wasn't in condition or because this person was in better condition for than me. We're not going to lose it because we're tired. All right, let's take that off. All right, we're not going to lose this fight because we not got knocked out. There are ways to strengthen your body. It's a little thing called the posterior chain in your core and all these little things. And then defense so that you don't lose the fight because you couldn't defend yourself. Or you couldn't get back up. Right. So that takes this little thing called resilience. Like you can prepare for that. You can prepare, prepare for that mentally. You can prepare, prepare for that physically. So that has to be taken off the table. Stamina. Then I need resilience. Right. 
thinking ability, right? Thinking ability is very much about recovery. You have stamina, which is like, how long can I sustain what I'm doing? Recovery is how often can I exert myself and then recover and then exert myself and recover and exert myself and recover. If you can do that, then you can be really aggressive trying different things, recover, try something else, recover, try something else. So I think it's all these things like I think in life, it just could not be more similar. In boxing, if you can do those things, if you can have a great defense to make sure like I can protect myself at all times, whether I, maybe I can't land a punch, but I can protect myself at all times, you can stay in the fight for 12 rounds. And so I think the ability to not get tired, to recover when you try things that maybe didn't work or get the knockout, the ability to be re resilient, to get up off the canvas if someone knocks you down, all these things give you this ever so precious thing that like Floyd Mayweather has it in the ring. I'm not talking about him as an individual. That's none of my business. Um, Muhammad Ali had a great, had this. I think my dad had it. He would say he did. Uh, Sugar Ray Robinson had it. Michael Jordan had it. LeBron James had it. All these people had Kobe. They had this, um, it's a privilege. Thinking ability. Thinking ability. And I don't care how like smart you are or how intelligent you are. If you can't go like this, <sighs> let me take a break. Let me sit in here defensively and think about what I want to do. Let me try this. Nah, that didn't work. Let me try something else. If you can't sit and do that and then remember what worked and optimize on top of it because you're tired, because you're discouraged, because you're scared, because you're insecure, because you didn't prepare. If you can't walk in, in every round of that fight, have your thinking ability, then you're just not going to win. doesn't matter how smart you are. I've seen the best fighters in the world go in there unprepared for, for all the things we talked about, and they didn't preserve their ability to think under intense pressure. And um, that pressure could come from your wife. That pressure could come from your family and some of these lineage, you know, lineage families where they uh, they have succession and all that. That pressure could come from your your boss, the people below you trying to overthrow you in a large corporate. It could come from anywhere. The bank, <laughs> financing, COVID, all these things you need to be able to think. And it's too late if you haven't prepared. So you got to be ready. I'd be kicking myself if I didn't ask this because even going back to before the training, you know, obviously, you know, your dad was a tremendous, you know, success in the ring. But then, then the business side of things, where the grilling machines, when those things came out, I know you were the business manager during that time and kind of were, you know, through that whole experience. How did things change, and kind of what were some of the lessons you learned during that time? Because I mean, I imagine that was a very transformative time in your life. <laughs> it's funny. This is the way my brain thinks. Don't let me forget the, the grilling machine. So let's go back to that question. But I think one of the things um, I learned in boxing that was super helpful with not just competition, but like strategy, business strategy is um, isolation. Right. And so we would talk a lot. And, you know, my coach would tell me when you get in the ring, you understand, like you do certain things and you can figure out what what tool does a guy want to use. And typically the tool they want to use is the one that they practice the most, the one they have the most confidence in, right? Just like any other business, like, or negotiation or whatever, or situation or whatever you want to call it, any business instance where you have to think strategically, right? So you find that out, like, what is the key to victory, right? And he's like, let's just take that off the table. So if a guy likes to throw a jab, it's like, great, let's throw a thousand. Do you have, have you practiced to throw a thousand of those in, in eight rounds? Come on, throw it. Throw it. Okay, you hit me with a now you're tired. Or he has a hook. All right, cool. I'm going to practice ducking hooks the entire training camp. He throws it. Duck. He throws it again. I hit him under it. He throws it again. I block it. He starts to throw his, I throw mine. He's like, I'm not throwing hooks. Then he goes to his second string, which most people don't even have a, a second string tactic 
or a plan B. And you say, oh, good, because you're tired of doing the first one and discouraged. So now you're doing something you don't really practice that much. Let's go ahead and shut that down. Right. And you're not even focused on what you want to do yet. You're just like, oh, take that tool away. Take that tool away. Now you have a regular person in front of you, a regular human being. And now you can you you, you can you can be you. You can attack your strategy. So, um, I mean, you can um, execute your strategy. So I think in business, I think about that a lot. Like, how can I isolate and, and remove variables? the strengths of my opponent or my opposition, how do I isolate those? And once I figure that out, then it can, we can have fun and, and be special. So back to the the grill, it was, in, it was an interesting experience because, you know, my dad had made money for, he kept him. My point is he kept himself clean, right? So he was like people are, he isolated himself. So you either saw him at the gym because everybody's always trying to ruin celebrities. Like in the tabloid days back then, it was a national Enquirer, It was this, that, and the other world magazine or globe. You see him in the gym, you see him at church, you see him on TV that was pre-recorded and edited. And then that's it. You could not see him ever. And if you did, if you saw him at a restaurant, you saw him at the airport, you saw him on in first class or on an airplane period. If you saw him anywhere, he was with one to two other people called witnesses. <laughs> and But also he was just never, literally never alone. If he was driving in the car, he never left the house without a tie. And um, he preserved that ability to just always, you know, have that ability to just be George and speak to people without this brand that was encumbered without, all, you know, from, from all the other stuff. And so he, he applied that to Nike, Oscar Mayer Wiener, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, a bunch of other companies. And somebody finally approached him and said, George, you're making all this money for these other companies. They struck him these big checks that he was really happy with. For us, it was like Christmas. I mean, like hitting the lottery, like, cause we were just coming up being poor. And um, he's like, why don't you create your own product? And he was like, oh, cool. Awesome. Let's create our own product. How much are you going to pay me? And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not going to pay you. We're going to give you this thing called equity. And he was like, I mean, he knew what equity was. He had already lost his pants in a few companies. He was like, ah, that's fine. You can give it to me if I want, but how much are you going to pay me? And the cat and mouse game went on and on. And um, two things happened that are special about the success of that. He kept saying no, right? That's sometimes the best way to negotiate because they just keep bringing you a better deal. And he had, by the way, he had been showing up to press conferences. People have been teasing him saying like, how is he going to win the heavyweight championship of the world? Because he's the fatted calf or blah, 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 blah. And like his training camps at Baskin Robbins, that hurt him. Right. And people writing about him in these tabloids saying he was too fat to be champion. And this is a debacle and it's a shame of the sport and all this stuff. And his, his robe is ripped and he's 300 and all. They talked so bad about him when he made his comeback. So he started showing up to the press conferences with hamburgers. And then he showed up with a tray and he started to get known for hamburgers. That's how he got the McDonald's commercial, the deal. So anyway, they had this burger machine that had been on the shelves, had not performed. I think untargeted, had been untargeted, been pulled off of Walmart, one of those. He didn't admit it, but it was great for cooking burgers. So they were like, George, got this burger machine, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, no, 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 no. So finally he was training for a fight. I think it was a Tommy Morrison fight. And um, they said, George... Oh, he, my, my mother had been using it to cook for us grilled cheese. Cause there's so many of us. So she could just like pump them out and then steaks for him. Cause he'd have a steak almost every day in camp. And she was like, George, the Teflon's rubbing off. So can you get another one? So he said, look, I'll do the deal. At that point, the deal had gotten up to 45% of equity um, in a joint venture that they were formed for the specific purpose of selling the grill. He said, I'll do it. I want 16 grills. That was enough for all the homes my grandmother to have one and then some backup. Right. 
and I'm going to give you half a day of shooting. I think it was like six hours. Like that was technically half a, uh, half a day shoot and um, shot the commercial. And uh, we did it at my at our house. I put on a little collared shirt and um, no, no, they shot the commercial. And then he went about his business. They ran it and it did OK. It didn't do great. There was a lot of images of him in boxing. And then they were like, George, we want to put some images of you and your family. So they came back and showed us around the table eating, swapped the boxing imagery out and put him with the family because people already knew he boxed at the time. And it just the sales went through the roof for every one dollar in advertising they were spending. They were getting back like six. And back then in the direct response world, you knew that that was a winner and you just kept pumping cash into it. George served as the business manager of his dad's empire and the executive VP of George Foreman Enterprises when the George Foreman Grill came out. I asked George to share some of the lessons he learned from this experience. What my dad will tell you, and I think this is definitely relevant to your listeners and your community, is um, two things. And it was a great success. By the end of it, he was making like $4 million a month in royalties. And that was his 45, office 45%. Uh, not royalties, but distributions of profit. So um, when he made his comeback... He said that he went to Don King. He called Don King and he's like, look, man, like stuff's, you know, not financially great right now. I'm coming back. It was obvious. And he, he might, my Don King said, George, what do you need? He said, I think I need a Clydesdale horse. <laughs> country. And he's like about $250,000. So Don King sent him $250,000 quick like that. And um, my dad held it. And then he felt Something didn't feel right to him. And he was like, that's not the way I'm doing this. Um, he's like, I've been champ before. I can do it again. And um, a lot of people don't know, my dad gave Don King his first big fight. It was a rumble in the jungle. And he gave him the fight because Don King if assumed, uh, there was other promoters that were going to promote it. But Don King agreed that my dad had a divorce coming up. He said, I'll sign a white sheet of paper. You hold it. Get the fight done, but don't put a contract on that sheet of paper until after my divorce. Don King agreed to do it. That's how he got the fight. So he created Don King and did a few other things for him. So it's late 80s. He's got Mike Tyson. He sends the money back. So then he goes to visit with him and he's like, look, I want the title. I want a title shot, Don. I want a title shot. Remember this guy he made, gave him the opportunities when no one else wanted to, to, to really mess with Don King in their 70s. Don gave him a contract and he said, here, sign this. And he said, you couldn't even read the, the, the letters. It was a copy of a copy of a copy. And he was like, I'm not signing this. And he's like, well, if you don't sign it, you won't have a title shot. He said, yeah, well, I can be champ. He said, George, and he busts out laughing. And he said, there's no way you're getting a title shot because he controlled all the champions at the time. He said, Don, I made you. And he said, Don laughed. And he go, and he said to himself or said it to Don King, he said, look, I did it before and I'll do it again. So he didn't sign the contract. So he said, look, what I'm going to do because everybody wants to fight on TV, right? And TV wants ratings and want numbers. He said, I'm going to build my own audience. People have heard of me, but there's a lot of people who haven't seen me in a long time. So he specifically picked markets that didn't have a major basketball team, football team, and all that hockey team or whatever. They didn't have anything, college, you know, no major college sports team. And he would go fight there. And when he'd go there, all the sports reporters locally would write. And he'd give them all the time they wanted the day before, just sit there for hours and answer questions and all that. He'd do open workouts, kiss the babies, kind of like campaigning, right? And then he'd fight. He'd make $2,500, barely pay the people who came with him, lose a little money, go into the next town. And he just went like 20 fights in like two years, I think, something crazy like that. Places like the Hitching Post, which I've never heard of. All these places, like places you wouldn't want to go. <laughs> and he would just fight. And 
eventually he'd been around in front of these thousands of people. And not only these many thousands of people, they would tell all their cousins, George Foreman's coming down to cut and shoot Texas. You know, like the world is George Cummins, George Foreman's coming and that would spread. And so USA, which is a big network at the time, offered him to fight. So he fought on USA, one fight deal. He was managing himself, did not never sign with a promoter at all at that after that point. And um, he shattered all USA, all USA's ratings records, period. And because it was all these people that normally didn't tune into USA because he went out and spoke to them individually. He killed himself. And those people, no one else came to visit them. No one else came to fight in front of them. When they heard George was on USA, they had to watch him because he stopped for them. And then they said, you want to do another fight? He's like, no, I'm good. Back to beating around the bush. Back to beating around. And then he fought on USA again. Crushed it. Then there's this thing called pay-per-view that was coming out. And um, same thing. He kept saying no, no, no to the big fights. George will give you $3 million. One million to fight this. He says, nope, I'm going to fight people you've never heard of in these towns you've never heard of. And then so finally he fought Jerry Cooney. That was a big deal. And then Holyfield was trying to fight Mike Tyson. And so remember building your own audience, not trying to like access somebody else's audience. Can you send an email blast for us? Or can you do this? Or like trying to get Facebook's audiences, which is kind of yours, but they won't let you access it. He's like, I got my own people, right? Today, you might call it a CRM. He goes around and Holyfield can't fight Tyson anymore. They've been trying to make the fight for years. Tyson gets in trouble, goes to jail. And so now Holyfield's a champion. No one's making him legitimate. And now he's like, I worked all hard and I can't get this payday because Tyson was a payday. Who is he going to fight and make $3 million? That wasn't big money back then. There's this guy named George Foreman and they had this data. <laughs> that he was one of the most recognizable figures in America and something about the ball head maybe. And they said, well, if you fight George, we're doing the numbers. We think we can guarantee you $12 million. So they went to my dad, guarantee him $12 million. And remember, like, we're just just getting out of like bankruptcy in terms of how we looked on paper, my, my family. My dad was like, awesome. And then he comes back and it's like, okay, Holyfield wants 15. Long story short, it was the biggest payday in years for boxing outside of Mike Tyson. He fought. And if you remember in 1991, I don't know how old you are, most homes didn't have a box. You have to be like either borderline rich or live in like a big city to get a box. And they sold 1 million pay-per-view buys in 1991, in a time where I think that the numbers were like only 12% of homes had a box or something crazy like that, people were going to movie theaters to watch closed circuit. One million pay-per-view buys. That actually didn't happen again for like years. The point is, those are his people. That was his organic crowd that he built himself, and they showed up for George. So after that, he lost that fight, but he became a big star, bigger. He went on to fight whoever he wanted, essentially, and would make no less than four or five million dollars, sometimes 10, because George brought the these eyeballs, which is another term that people use. So when it came for the grill, so now he's got 20, 30, 40 millions of people, like one million pay-per-view buys, right? That means four to six million people are watching or more, right? And so on and so forth. So when it came time to sell the grill, they were like, We've never seen anything <laughs> perform this well. It was those same people in the Hitchin Post, those same people in Cut and Shoot, the, these backwoods places, they would come out. And he would always say, my guy is the guy who keeps pulling up his pants because his belly keeps showing, the plumber, and he pulls it up and it goes back down to the same spot. He would speak to all these what we call normal people. So the grill went on to be the most successful houseware appliance on housewares appliance on QVC. It was the first time QVC sold a million of anything. And so by the time, I think it was like 2003, the iPod was just hitting, 
I remember we had sold more grills and iPods. That was like a big claim of fame. Now it's sold over 150 million units. We assume it's somewhere between 70, eight, eight, 70 to 80 million unique people have purchased a product, a pay-per-view or something. He built that audience himself. Unfortunate thing is we don't have all those emails in the database because that wasn't a thing back then, but that was his audience. And so I think the biggest learning from that is build your own audience. It's painful. Now that we have this thing called CRMs, we can communicate with them via text, via email, automations. It's so much easier now. You can take that and throw it into a machine and get data about them. We didn't have that. But the point is that is so much more worth than anything. To me, that's the gold standard of business. And that's the story of the grill. Man. George, I love that you brought that all full circle, man. You're, you're a masterful uh, storyteller. But let's talk about mindset, because I think sometimes when, when people mention mindset, I've seen some respond, they feel like this is intangible, and they're like, listen, I want to hear about the tactics, George. But it, mindset, I feel, is at it, it, the end of the day, if you can hone that, that is probably the most powerful thing that separates some of the highest achieving people, period. But from your experience, what, what difference did that make, you know, both in the business world and even with fighters, of just the differences in mindsets? And also, is it something that you, know, that you can really hone? Mindset's important. I think, um, like, I just don't ever feel like I've ever failed, right? And I don't know how other people feel. I just don't, never felt that way. I just felt like, I feel like I'm trying to get somewhere. And just like the gym, like, I take my losses in the gym. Like, I take my losses every day, right? But I don't feel like taking a loss is failing, if that makes any sense. As long as you have, like, a greater, like, focus, you know? So I think that that's important in mindset. It's kind of like the guy, like, I love basketball because just it's so obvious when somebody messes up takes a shot or takes too many shots and doesn't hit them. And you, 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 you really like appreciate the guys who just like go like one for 20 in the first half and then come back the second half and like score 50 points or something like that. It's like, how did you not get discouraged? You know, like, how are you wired? Are you, and some people think they're like pompous or they're, um, you know, they use words, derogatory terms and they're this and they're that, and they always want the ball and all that. But I actually think their mindset um, especially because they know they practice and not supposed to be missing is what drives that. And I think um, I'd say mindset is everything. And I think you have to figure out your mindset that's going to work for you. I don't like wake up and say, I'm not a failure. And I'm never going to fail. I don't even use the term. Like even with what's going on in the world with the issues around race, which are really important and I identify with, but I didn't grow up using the word black and white. Just didn't. It's a new term for me, which is fine, which is and it's good. But my point is like failure is just not in my vocabulary. It's just not. And so that's the mindset that works for me, you know? And I think you got to find your mindset, the mindset that works for you. Um, one of the things that my sister taught me, she's passed now, Frida. She um, told me when you get in the ring, think about who you are. Like if you look at someone and you're like, you know what? The perfect posture to deal with you is Ali, right? Muhammad Ali. And I would just imagine I'm him my body would react because I've watched him so many times and I trained to be able to do the things he could do. Not as good as he could do them or not as fast, but I would just be Muhammad Ali. If I wanted to be Joe Frazier, like I could just think that and do it right. That mindset helped me. If I wanted to be all these Sugar Ray Robinson, if I wanted to be Oscar De La Hoya that night or whatever, I could just do it right. Especially in the gym. And so same thing, like in business, like my mindset sometimes is puff daddy, right? Like to me, he comes off as just like, I don't care. We're going to get this done. Sometimes it's like Jay-Z, like, mm, maybe I'm not going to say nothing. That's going to be my response. Sometimes it's like Warren Buffett. Sometimes it's Bill Gates. Sometimes it's, you know, and, and the list goes on and on, right? Somebody off Shark Tank. Embodying those people, that's part of like my mindset practice, if you will. 
And then being last thing, I would say, I think one of the most powerful things for mindset is being able to be outside yourself and to, in moments, be able to step aside and like, look at yourself and ask yourself, how do I want to, how do I want this to play out? If I'm watching myself, like, what do I want myself to do? That's hard to do it in the moment, but to be self-aware, I think um, is probably one of the most um, superhuman mindset abilities, if you will. You know, as we come to a close, you know, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I'll say this. I think all game changers have one thing in common is they get excited about conflict, like geeked up. I mean, it's never fun, right? You can be upset and all that, but they get like, they look forward to conflict because they figured out how to grow from it. The relationships might get stronger. The understanding might get better. They don't see things as a zero sum game, right? So I think being a game changer is about not just resolving conflict, but creating growth for all parties involved out of conflict. Conflict could be your, you know, your muscle tension. Conflict could be an argument with your child, your wife, a disagreement. Like, can we get better at talking through these things or handling these things? Can we actually get better at the process of resolving these conflicts? It's called growth. People are no longer afraid to be honest with you in an organization. So I think not just conflict resolution, but using conflict as a platform to improve relationships, improve performance. That's what a game changer does. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, George Foreman III, and have gained some new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with George Foreman III, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.